On the night of September 19, 1961, Betty and Barney Hill were driving back to their home in Portsmouth when Betty caught a glimpse of what appeared to be a strange aircraft in the sky. The couple pulled over to the side of the road, and Barney took a pair of binoculars out of the glove box to get a closer look. At first, the object seemed like it might have been a plane. Then, suddenly, it began to descend towards them. Quickly returning to their vehicle, they began to drive. What followed was hours of fear and confusion as the saucer-shaped craft appeared to follow them, even nearly landing on the road in front of them. When they finally returned home, Betty found that her clothing had been torn and neither of them could clearly remember the entirety of their drive back. Later, through dreams and hypnosis, Betty and Barney recalled being led aboard a spaceship in a trance-like state by diminutive gray-skinned aliens and being subjected to painful medical examinations and procedures. Their testimony has become the template for countless stories that would later be told by others who would claim to have had similar encounters. Is there a scientific explanation for the alien abduction phenomenon? Is there a link between nocturnal alien visitations and the many similar stories that have been passed down by various cultures throughout history? What is it about the appearance of these gray, teardrop-headed aliens that people find so compelling? Find out all this and more on today's show. You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 10, Alien Abduction. So when I was in grad school, actually before I went to grad school, I was interviewed by my prospective graduate supervisor. And she had a dinner party where she invited a bunch of people, including myself. And I felt very adult. I think it must have been like 22 or something. But she had this kind of eclectic group of people, nobody's names I remember. One of the people that I, I remember that was there was a professor at Concordia who was in fact studying alien abductions and why people believed in alien abductions. And I remember thinking at the time, what? How is it that this is actually an academic pursuit. I couldn't believe that there was scientists or psychologists that were studying this. The scientific community agrees that there's no good evidence that aliens have ever visited Earth. But in spite of this, there are large groups of people who believe that aliens not only visit Earth, but abduct people onto their spaceships. Belief in aliens is a fairly common thing, and people do believe all kinds of things, but I'm going to talk about the most pervasive one in, in our culture right now, one community in particular, and they call themselves abductees. And they believe that a specific species of alien comes to Earth and routinely abducts people. Now, if I use the word abductee, I don't want to imply that they've actually been abducted because I don't think they have, but that's what they call themselves. What are these aliens supposedly doing to people? The typical narrative goes like this. A person is abducted and they're almost always alone and it's almost always from bed. The aliens come in the middle of the night and they stand around you and then they bring you into a spaceship and then they do some kind of violent and sexual act. Okay, so it's almost always violent or reproductive, right? So you might be forced to have sex with an alien or they impregnate you and then you get brought back and you're traumatized by the experience. Like the anal probe, probe is, is like the is like the running joke about like what happens, but it's it's actually from what the abductee stories this is are like. Fascinating. 
The alien looks pretty familiar. I think everybody's kind of seen what the alien looks like. It's called a gray. Gray is the name of the species, named after their gray skin. It's basically the alien that uh, you see in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And it's like on all kinds of t-shirts and everything. It's bald. It's got slanted black eyes, usually no pupils, very small nose, um, small mouth, diminutive, about the size of a human woman, uh, and often uh, naked. This is like the alien. It's also on the cover of Whitley Strieber's Communion, which was like the best-selling. Communion is a book by Whitley Strieber, who is a science fiction author who happens to believe he was also abducted. So he oh. wrote this story of, of what happened to him. And on the cover is this big gray alien. It's actually beige in that picture on that cover, but that's the, that's the one. I remember even when I was in high school, I thought that because everyone thought they saw this alien, that was some evidence that it must have been real. Hmm. I actually wrote a term paper in high school, I'm embarrassed to say, arguing that it, it probably was real. What is the origin of the classic gray alien with its iconic eyes and small humanoid frame? After Betty and Barney Hill's UFO encounter, they both underwent regressive hypnotherapy sessions in an attempt to further recollect the events of that night, a technique that is now considered ineffective and pseudoscientific by psychologists. Both of them described creatures with gray skin, which stood about five feet tall, when asked to recollect the face of the creatures, Barney described and then sketched beings with wraparound eyes and a slightly bulbous head. Just 12 days before Barney went under hypnosis to recall more about his abduction experience, the science fiction show The Outer Limits had aired an episode titled The Bolero Shield. This episode featured an alien with eyes and a head remarkably similar to that which Barney drew. We have included a link to a comparison picture in the show notes. As time passed, books like Communion and films and TV shows like Close Encounters of the Third Kind and The X-Files further refined, streamlined, and popularized this conception of what an alien looks like. The appearance of the gray alien has become incredibly successful culturally and seems to resonate deeply with people. What could explain the connection we seem to feel to the little gray men. This this particular alien that you're describing sounds an awful lot like a human. They're basically distorted human bodies, right? So the shapes are off, like things are the wrong size or they're warped, but um, it's it's sort of like you could just take a like a bald naked human and turn it into an alien in Photoshop using a couple of filters, right? All the body parts are kind of in the right place. Humanoid aliens are more compelling. It's like a better story. It's more believable and uh, more meaningful to people. I'll, I want to talk about that more in a future show. For now, I'll just take it for granted that uh, humanoid aliens are something that people really gravitate to. Now, there's one really weird theory out there, and I don't know if I totally believe this theory, but it's very interesting. <clears throat> and that is that the alien, the gray alien, looks kind of like how a mother's face looks to a newborn baby. So here's the story anyway, and this is this is published in a, in a couple of places, but um, infants apparently see faces kind of differently. So one thing is that they don't use noses or ears to detect a face. So when they do studies, they can like remove the nose and ears and it doesn't affect the child's ability to foveate on it or to like look at it. Baby's vision is also less sensitive to detail. So not only do alien these, these gray aliens have no ears and no nose, but when you blur like a picture of a human face, it ends up looking a little bit more like an alien, right? Blurring has is interesting. It can actually um, improve face recognition in adults, which is strange, but something about the details can, can mm. be distracting. Finally, newborns don't see color. And of course, these aliens are called grays because they're gray. Somebody tried to use software to manipulate a picture of a woman's face so that it looked kind of the way we think a newborn baby sees it. 
And if you look at this picture, it looks kind of like a gray. The eyes become narrow and diagonally slanted. Uh, the nose and the mouth become less prominent. The hair and the ears disappear. So I think the theory is a little bit wild, but it's interesting that so many things about the way babies see faces are kind of the distinguishing characteristics of, of the gray aliens. Now, this is, I'm just sort of tap dancing here, right? But let's just say that you had a face that looked a little bit like the primordial face that you saw as a baby. Right. And that's been stored in your very, you know, very long-term memory versus something that doesn't look anything like it. There's, it's just going to feel more meaningful, right? right? It's going to evoke some kind of familiarity and, and weirdness that is going to make it more compelling uh, to believe in, you might say, than some other random alien that doesn't resemble anything you've ever seen before. After their initial encounter with the UFO, it took time for Betty and Barney Hill to recover the memories of their alleged abduction. Betty began to have dreams of what had occurred that night. They discussed their experiences between themselves and with others. Later, after undergoing hypnotherapy and recalling more of his experiences from that night, Barney thought that he must have originally repressed his memories of being examined and sexually assaulted by the aliens. How do accounts like this line up with what psychology now knows about PTSD and how we process traumatic events? There are clues in the typical abduction story that make it kind of suspect. One thing is that people just don't like wake up the next morning remembering the whole thing. Often these memories have to be recovered through questioning and talking with other abductees. And this is very suspicious, right? When somebody's asking you questions like, did they have hair or were they bald? You know. Well, did, did they ever touch you, right? Suddenly you're imagining being, and suddenly like, oh, maybe they did. And then, so this kind of thing has been proven to lead to false memories in a wonderful series of studies in the lab of Elizabeth Loftus, who's one of my heroes. <laughs> so basically, if you rehearse a scene in your imagination over and over again, you can make a mistake. You can misremember it as something that has actually happened to you. Now, Freud had this very influential idea that traumatic memories can be repressed. So people in popular culture will often talk about repressing memories or whatever. And the idea is that if you experience something really traumatic, your mind will sort of shove it into your subconscious and you can't recall what happened. A lot of psychologists believe it and a lot of lay people believe it, but um, the scientific evidence is, is rather weak. What really happens to traumatic people in general is that they can't stop thinking about it. That's the real problem. Is that PTSD? Like yeah, they the have classic, flashbacks. Yeah. They they they're not repressing it. They just you know it's they think about it so much it's interfering with their life. But anyway, people often have to talk to these other abductees to fully remember what happened to them, and they get all these suggestions because they hear other people's stories. They become part of this community, and then they you know they start fleshing out their own story of what happened to them. But it, it takes details from the other people. Do you know if there's any studies looking at specific personality traits that these abductees may have? They do They do tend to have more false memories on a typical false memory test. Interesting. So, so maybe a typical, the there. typical false memory test is you give them a list of words about a particular subject. So I'll say like bandage, hospital, nurse, hypodermic needle. And then later on, I say, was the word doctor in the list? And because all of the words were semantically like meaning related to doctor, people are likely to misremember doctor being in the list. And people have individual, what we call individual differences with that. Some people are more likely to have a false memory than others. So yeah, the abductees score higher on false memory tests okay. too. In a 2016 article, Vice News asked abductees to describe and draw their experiences. One woman, Louise, described what happened to her this way. I woke up in the middle of the night, paralyzed. To my right, there were two small aliens. I can't really explain why, but I wasn't scared. 
I was raised horizontally above the bed and levitated towards the closed window. The next moment, I found myself on a very cold table, surrounded by the two small aliens and a third, much bigger creature who was standing by my feet. His body was a blur to me. Experiences like this are frequent among abductees. Are these common experiences evidence for alien abduction, or is there another explanation altogether? There's something called sleep paralysis, and a really suspicious part of the abduction narrative is that people tend to have these experiences while they're in bed, either alone or while their partner's in sleep. This is also the same with religious revelations when people see gods and stuff, they're often falling asleep while it happens. And this is very suspicious because it never happens to two people at the same time. So you never get two people reporting seeing a demon or a god or an alien at the same time where they can both corroborate the details. It's always a solitary activity in what we call a hypnagogic state, which is between wakefulness and sleep. So they'll often say they wake up in the middle of the night, they're surrounded by gray aliens, they can't move, they have trouble breathing, they're, they're terrified. Now, sleep paralysis is characterized by middle of the night waking, an inability to move, hmm. pressure on the chest, and hallucinations of malevolent, usually male figures, and a feeling of abject terror. Like hmm. the terror you feel during sleep paralysis is beyond what most people get in their whole waking life. And it's a real thing. It's absolutely terrifying. Now, there's a Netflix documentary called The Nightmare. Now, if you suffer from sleep paralysis, do not watch this documentary. <laughs> Because it will feed your imagination and, and maybe make them scarier. But if you're if you're interested and you don't get sleep paralysis, you know you might find that interesting. Uh, just read the Wikipedia article instead. So one thing that's interesting about the sleep paralysis is that the actual experience of what you see, what you hallucinate, is culturally influenced, right? So you seem to fill it in with a culturally appropriate narrative. Okay, in China they call it ghost pressure. In the in, in the country of Georgia, they call it the old hag. In the West Indies, it's some baby ghost who jumps on your chest and tries to strangle you. Gosh. You know, so you're noticing all these patterns. Yeah. Like, okay, you're you're dreaming of pressure on your chest, mm. and you've got this hallucination of malevolent beings. Well, we have a whole lot of cultures that end up making up these myths that something's stealing your breath or strangling you. You might have heard of a cat. The idea of a cat sitting on your chest and stealing your breath. I don't know if you ever heard of that, but it's yeah. like yeah. that's that's probably a sleep paralysis generated thing. In European history, it's probably the origin of the sex demon, right? The succubus, the incubus. And the, the butt probe. <laughs> and the butt, the, the Western, the, the long well, that might be Western explaining. tradition of the butt probe. <laughs> no, no, but that's what the abductees believe. They do. Right? I don't, I've never heard of, of like anal uh, stimulation being part of, of, of sleep paralysis, but you know, who knows? Anyway, now in the modern world, we hallucinate aliens, right? So if you've heard of this alien story, yeah. which now we're telling more people about it. So if they have sleep paralysis, <laughs> they might become like abductees. So I feel kind of bad about that. But uh, every single one, one sample of abductees, every single one of them had reported no. sleep paralysis. So it's just very, that's you know, cool. that's, that's suspicious. Yeah. After a steady increase in UFO sighting reports from 2001 to 2012, reports have been on the decline. Since 2012, there's been a 40% drop in UFO sightings in the United States. What factors could explain this change? You'd imagine that given how, you know, ubiquitous cell phones are and our ability to take photos, like, you know, if, if somebody saw a UFO or an alien, you'd think they'd be snapping pictures. So why isn't yeah. that happening? Right. Well, in, in the typical alien abduction story, they're paralyzed because in sleep paralysis, you can't move. So that's one of thing. Of course. Yeah. But, you know, spotting UFOs, they used to be a lot more. And the UFO reported UFO sightings have gone down 
significantly since there was a widespread use of cell phones that have cameras in them. And I think it's just, you know, easy to say you saw an alien craft when you don't have your camera with you. But now people would just be like, why don't you just take a picture of it with your phone, right? Mm. Um, so I think in the past, people were embellishing what they saw, right? So they'd see something that was a little bit weird and they'd want to make it a better story. And they'd start every time you, and every time you recall a memory, you subtly change it. So you could actually like be changing the memory to make it more alien ship-like and with people asking you questions, it's the same thing with like recovered memories, right? You can start to actually mm. change your own memories mm. to make it more like it. Hmm. Um, you know, and and it's sort of a, a great story and a tall tale. And this alien abduction story is really great science fiction. It's got like sex, it's got violence, it's got creatures from another world, it's got, you know, spaceships. And the reality is actually boring, right? This is this is part of the problem that like skeptics face when they're trying to convince people is that the reality is more bore much more boring than that than the than this than the theory, right? Uh, you know, swamp gas and airplanes and ball lightning. Uh, you know, people don't make blockbuster movies out of out of swamp gas and stuff, right? But there, there are lots of, you know, movies that have alien abduction in them. I just have such a hard time believing that people believe in these things. Well, there isn't really any hard evidence. Yeah. Okay. So the lack of hard evidence is, is a big problem for the theory, obviously. One of the ways they get around it is that a lot of them think that there's a government cover up. This idea that the government, like the American government say, knows that this has been happening. And there's, there are myths about like Area 51 where they have alien bodies and they, they, people have concocted videos showing alien bodies that are supposedly, you know, from the inside or whatever. But a conspiracy is really handy for holding on to crappy beliefs because uh, you can chalk up any counter evidence to the conspiracy. Mm. So, for example, um, if the somebody spots a UFO and says... It's probably an alien ship. And then the government says, well, that was just one of our test aircraft. The conspiracy theorist can say, oh, well, of course they would say that because they're actually hiding the fact that an alien showed up. And they're just, it's very easy for them to say it was a, a secret experimental craft that we can't uh, have access to because it's secret and isn't convenient for them to cover up the aliens. Now, I mean, what I suspect is happening is that the government probably does have secret aircraft and they're thrilled that people believe in aliens because it distracts people from the reality of their secret aircraft. So they're, they, the government doesn't even have a particular motive to dissuade people from the alien abduction belief. It actually can cloud whatever they're actually doing. You know? right. But um, it sounds you like know, the plot of stranger things anyway. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really not very plausible, but, but this is the problem with conspiracy theories. This is what makes them, very hard to dislodge from, from people's minds. So for example, if you believe in astrology, astrology also has no scientific evidence for it, right? So you're, there's no evidence that your personality or any other psychological trait is affected at all by what time of year you're born month by month. Actually, the, the only thing that's true is that there's a slight advantage in terms of intelligence and health if you're born like spring, early summer, but that's because you're, you're an infant during good weather. Right. Um, I'm screwed. I was yeah. born in November. Well, think of what you could have been. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. You could have been a genius. You could, yep. Um, uh, you could have been on a better podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, you know, so if somebody believes in astrology, you can say to them, well, look, the evidence doesn't really support it. And they have to come up with different strategies to hold on to that belief because there's no conspiracy theory associated with astrology. But with a, with a conspiracy theory, you can chalk up the counter evidence to the conspiracy, right? So if, if we say, uh, let's just give an example. It's like, oh, somebody put a tracker in me mm. and then we removed it. And I said, well, we removed it and we looked at it and it was just made of normal earth materials and it's, 
There's nothing particularly alien about it. Um, they might say, well, it was probably, maybe it was replaced by government agents. And then they weave it into their narrative, right? So it mm -hmm. becomes, it actually becomes evidence for the whole narrative, right? And that's why it's very hard to argue with conspiracy theorists because they, they, they've got a, an answer for everything in the sense that even counter evidence can bolster their belief because they see that as evidence of, of the conspiracy. You know, just to say a little bit about conspiracies in general is that the reason that most of them are implausible, and I don't want to say they're all implausible because some conspiracies are real. So Watergate mm -hmm. was a real conspiracy. You know, people do try to hide stuff. But the history of successful conspiracies is really small. Well, right? we don't... It's like Bletch... No, like Bletchley Circle or what, like, like right, the, like like the things people, that lasted. The people who made the first... The, Brit, the Brits who made the first computers, and I, I'd like to look more into this, but I think that the people who were sworn to secrecy actually kept their mouths shut for like 50 years. And finally, when it was lifted, they say, yeah, we had computers long before the Americans. We just weren't allowed to talk about it for 50 years. That is a rare example of people being able to keep quiet. But what we find, even with Watergate, like so many people would have to be involved. Yeah, there's no that, way. That, that, that the fact that w nobody has come forward is what's implausible. Like this, apparently, you know, if you, like Whitley Strieber's book was published in the 80s. If people have been being abducted by aliens ever since that NBC artist created <laughs> the design for the alien. Then we've got like 40 or so years, 30 or 40 years of aliens being uh, abducting people and a conspiracy meant to hide it. That would mean that, you know, how many, how many people in the government would have had access to that you know, like there are people who have to clean, let's say they have an alien, you know, there's an alien body at area 51. Like somebody's got to mop the floor. Like every <laughs> single person, every single person who was involved has kept their mouth shut. That is what conspiracy theorists overestimate. You know, like I remember when I was in grad school, my, um, one of my advisors, you know, worked on some of the math for like the moon landing or whatever. Right. And it just struck me. It's like, okay, here she is. She's an opera singer. You know, she's a historian of science. She's very liberal. And she would, she would have had to be involved with a moon landing conspiracy. Like it would have to go so far down that even my advisor like is keeping her mouth shut about the fact that it's a big conspiracy. Right. And that's so ridiculous. Preposterous. It's preposterous, it's right? Implausible. Yeah. So conspiracy theorists in general, um, you know, they, they overestimate people's ability to keep their mouth shut. And to me, like the idea of a, like a 40 year government conspiracy covering up aliens through all the administrations, like not one of them would think mm -hmm. that it's worth telling the public the truth. <laughs> like everyone thinks that the, everyone would panic. I don't think people would panic. And I think that at least some presidents like Clinton, come on, Clinton would have, <laughs> Clinton would have let it out. Right. <laughs> like to me, like the idea yeah, that, that, that would have been his out. The idea. I did not have sex with that woman. However, there are aliens. Yeah. Yeah. He's smart enough to <laughs> divert, just, divert, yeah, divert. Yeah. He, <laughs> okay. he could, well, there wasn't Twitter back then. Could have tweeted back. So, so to me, like it's, it's like even more, the idea of a conspiracy lasting that long is even more unrealistic than the aliens visiting us. This episode of Minding the Brain was edited by me, Mike Contos, and brought to you by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University, and made possible, in part, by the frontal lobe, allowing the planning necessary to pull off podcast production. Theme music for Minding the Brain is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.